Hey, Jay, how you doing? Good, man. How are you? Good. Congratulations on your Michigan Wolverines winning the national championship. It's the best thing ever. And I hope the, the haters go and find some place else to uh, complain. I've had the pleasure of being a Michigan Wolverines bandwagon fan this uh, season. It's been a fun run. I've enjoyed joining Wolverines Nation. Is that what you call yourself? You know, I, you, you can call it whatever you want, whatever you're comfortable <laughs> with. All right, great. <laughs> All right, well, today we're going to be talking a bit about your recent trip to New York to um, chat with the FBI at their big cybersecurity conference, uh, check in on some of their investigations and what they're doing to combat cybercrime online. We've also got Mick Baccio on the show today. He is, or was rather, the first ever chief information security officer of a presidential campaign, and he joins the show to discuss how to secure political campaigns in the year 2024. That's today on SafeMode. Welcome to Safe Mode. I'm Elias Grohl, Senior Editor at CyberScoop. Every week we break down the most pressing issues in technology, provide you the knowledge and the tools to stay ahead of the latest threats, and take you behind the scenes of the biggest stories in cybersecurity. An attack is coming. It's about keeping us safe. He's just a disgruntled hacker. She's a super hacker. Stay alert. Stay safe. Stay safe. This is Safe Mode. I'm your host, Elias Grohl, and I'm joined today by AJ Vicens, CyberScoop reporter. Hey, AJ, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So you were recently in New York at uh, the FBI's um, irregularly scheduled cybersecurity conference. It seems to happen every 18 months or so at Fordham University. Uh, and you had a chance to check in with folks at the Bureau to talk about their cyber investigations. Uh, what did you learn at the conference? What were highlights? Yeah, like you said, it's their semi-annual. No, it wouldn't be semi-annual. It's their uh, irregular. Let's go with irregular. Um, their conference where they get together and talk about the latest in investigations, what they're seeing, what they're worried about. And it's a lot of FBI folks, uh, justice, um, the NSA was represented, you know, the private private industry. So, you know, it's kind of a, a nice catch up for all these folks to really check in on where things stand and what's what they're most worried about. Frankly, it was a lot of um, there was some optimism, but also some some worry about certain things. And um, you know, it was it was good to be there. Yeah. So let's start with the good news then. What what was the optimism in the room? I think the optimism was, and, and this one struck me really, and we wrote about this at the time, was that uh, Rob Joyce, one of the top cybersecurity officials at the National Security Agency, talked about where he sees AI as actually being useful right now. Uh, you know, we've written a lot about this. We cover AI frequently. Everybody else does too, right? It's kind of the buzzword of the last year or so. But there's a lot of hype and a lot of snake oil and a lot of uh, overselling of the capabilities and the problems, this and that. But where he's saying that this actually is useful is in helping to surface techniques that high-level hackers use to get inside networks and maintain presence and that sort of thing. Um, they employ these techniques that industry professionals refer to as living off the land. And that you know, that relies on things like not bringing in bespoke malware or custom tools, that kind of thing. Right. And what, what ends up happening is they use systems 
in a way that a normal user would. And it's hard to really see that kind of activity. But he said that the, the NSA and other intelligence professionals are, are finding ways to use um, artificial intelligence to surface those techniques. So that's a, a win in my book. Yeah. It's interesting, right? Because this speaks to this ongoing debate in, I think, AI, cybersecurity policy world of whether the um, adoption of AI technologies is going to advantage offense or defense. And there's been a lot of fears that, you know, AI is going to be used to supercharge hacking campaigns, be used to, you know, automatically create um, malware, potentially supercharge spear phishing. Um, but what Rob Joyce seems to be saying is that for now, like defense is getting the advantage from AI. Yeah, I mean, he's saying that it's really helping in that regard. Um, yeah. It's going, you're going to see both sides, he was saying, find ways to use this to their advantage. But in the short term for right now, this is really helpful. Um, you know, one of the other things he talked about, though, was seeing more and more uh, that both criminal and nation state hackers are, are getting better at using these sorts of tools for, uh, you know, attacks that require clean English and clean language. So language based attacks, you know, like pig butchering scams, other kind of, you know, phishing emails, they are seeing more and more of that. So, you know, that's not encouraging at all. Um, and obviously, if it, it feels like this technology is just advancing quite rapidly. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we are heading towards, you know, problems. But yeah. for now, anyway, we can take the small modicum of positivity that comes out of uh, where they are finding useful applications. And, and were, were folks at the, the conference, there, the, were they talking about the use of AI in pig butchering schemes in particular? And for folks who aren't familiar, these are romance scams in which scammers contact victims online posing as potential romantic partners and then convince them to transfer large sums of money, uh, butchering the pig, if you will. Um, it, it, was this, were, were these types of attacks something that folks at the conference were talking about might be enabled by AI or might be improved by AI? I think there, the short answer is yes. And the, the reason is fairly straightforward in that, you know, a lot of us see these emails come through or these weird texts that say, hey, your UPS package is ready, but actually you need to click this link and double check. Mm. Um, but the language is just off in some key way or there's something about the wording or the context that just isn't quite right. But as these models that continuously you know, train on themselves and other inputs, as they continue to be refined, they get more and more just very clean and very precise and their, their ability to convince you to click that link or to um, have the proper sort of contextual clues is just getting better. And so mm. it's, it's much easier for someone that doesn't have the English language context to pull off uh, the, the necessary, you know, phishing attack, which can lead to, you know, the, the criminal applications, the financially motivated types of things, or, you know, there's a lot of phishing as an initial uh, access vector for nation state attacks. So um, really that's both ways. Yeah, we've heard a lot of chatter from, or statements rather from Department of Justice officials 
over the past year or two in which they say they're trying to go after cybercrime more more aggressively. What was your sense from the conference of how that project is going? Is the FBI happy with the investigations that they're carrying out? Do they feel like they're having success in going after cybercrime online? I think the short answer is yes, again. Um, they are, you know, there's a... There's a pivot that we've covered a lot at CyberScoop um, within the Department of Justice and the FBI towards a more proactive, disruptive approach rather than sitting back, not not sitting back, that's the wrong word, you know, rather than sort of waiting to gather all the evidence to put together a case to bring to a courtroom and get someone either arrested, indicted, extradited, those kinds of things. Mm. Um, you know, don't get me wrong, they still want to put people in jail that commit crimes, but they've said publicly, and I think the evidence sort of backs this up, at least from what we've seen in the public operations, that they're more willing to uh, proactively shut down a network, even if there are no arrests attached to it. Um, so those sorts of things um, have become really much more frequent. And so they'll take down a, a group of servers or they'll, um, work with their international partners to disrupt an operation that you know is widespread and, and far-reaching, but there are no arrests or there are arrests in different countries, um, those sorts of things. And I think they're they're really happy with the results so far, and I think they're going to we're going to see more of that. Yeah, well, we'll have you back on the show to discuss that. I'm sure when that happens, AJ. Thank you for coming on the show and your great reporting on this. Thanks so much. Coming up next on Safe Mode, I'm joined by Mick Baccio to discuss the cybersecurity threats facing political campaigns going into 2024. Mick was the first ever chief information security officer on a presidential campaign, and he joins the show to discuss the unique challenges in trying to secure a modern political campaign. That's up next on Safe Mode. I'm joined today by Mick Baccio, who holds the distinction of being the first ever chief information security officer for a U.S. presidential campaign. In 2020, he worked for the Pete Buttigieg campaign, trying to secure its systems, and is a leading expert on how to keep political campaigns from being hacked. Before going into campaign world, he oversaw threat intelligence at the White House for both the Obama and Trump administrations, and he's now a security researcher at Splunk. Mick Baccio, welcome to Safe Mode. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Thanks for coming on. So I thought we might begin this conversation by going back to 2016. Mm -hmm. At the time, you were working in the president's office on threat intelligence issues when emails that had been stolen from the Democratic National Committee and the Hillary Clinton campaign started appearing online. I wonder if you might kind of roll back that tape a bit. And if wow. you could describe yeah. kind of what was it like watching that play out from your seat in the White House working on threat intelligence issues? So I started working at the White House, and uh, it was shortly after DEFCON, so I want to say it's September of 2015. And if you do the timeline math in your head, the, the DNC and the DTRIP were already compromised by then. Hmm. So walking into a threat intelligence role at the White House, it was, oh, it's already hit the fan. What do we do now? Hmm. And... Everything leading up to that, and, and when, you, when you kind of look at the history, allegedly, because there's a big asterisk of what's been confirmed and what's not been confirmed, uh, you look at compromises a year before in 2014, uh, State Department, the White House, SecDefComs, you know, all these different agencies that potentially may have been compromised by state actors. 
and everything leading up to the election, you know, like you mentioned the, the Clinton emails, uh, John Podesta's emails, I know there were over 70,000 because one of the tasks for my team was downloading every email that had been leaked online and just preparing that for the legal department to see if there's anything embarrassing to the administration, just prepare themselves. And it was just, you know, a Herculean effort, just everything leading up to the election and, and days before um, Anthony Weiner's laptop, all of that coming out mm. and, and everything that was bringing back fond memories. It is traumatizing. <laughs> I think I might, might not get much, much sleep tonight, but it was so busy at a time you and in retrospect, we've had this conversation, friends of mine, you were so busy focused on the trees, you didn't see the forest. Mm. There were so many individual things happening, uh, at least 30 different individuals' emails, whether that was something that was an intelligence compromise or something that was just embarrassing material that could have been leaked online. You had to kind of run all that down the ground. So you didn't focus on the bigger intelligence operation that I think was happening at the time. Yeah. So as you're looking at these, all of these kind of trees material is right. At what point are you realizing that this is a, a Russian campaign to try to influence the outcome of the election like at what point does that coin drop i think 2018 2019 years after it takes that long i i, I don't think you know at least to come to that conclusion definitively I, I don't think you can make that on the fly uh, uh based on individual things because mm -hmm. remember this was a legislative executive and and, and judicial you know when you, when you cross those branches of governments Historically, we don't work well together. And no matter what the circumstance is, there's always going to be that bureaucracy and red tapes that kind of prevent the investigations from moving forward. Mm. And I'm not saying that was the crux of it. I, I know at least for me individually, it was seeing the individual trees and not the broader scope of the operation. Also, I'm a China guy, so that was my wheelhouse. Mm. Uh, so seeing a Russian operation was, was certainly, um, looking back, it was something I think we'll talk about for the next 30, 40 years about how that all played out. Yeah. And I'm not even sure if we'll know the entire scope of it. When you look back on, on 2016 and the Russian operation, what are the lessons for you? I think for me, because I had friends that were working on Secretary Clinton's campaign, the Hillary for America campaign. And I remember not being able to share with them information about what was happening directly affecting their campaign, directly affecting their infrastructure because of the classification of that material. And, and you know, in hindsight, it, it's hard because of a lot of guilty knowledge because of the class reporting that I read and the environment that I worked in. But I, I do think it goes to something that I've been harping on for as long as I can remember. And the information sharing has to get better, whether it's from the government to campaigns, whether it's from the, the RNC to the DNC, you know, the, all those elements have to work together to have a secure election or as secure as we can make it. Um, I think people's informed decisions are their best decisions, but leveling that playing field across the board is something that I think we can continually try and get better at. Yeah. So where do you think we're at now in terms of the government's ability to share information with a political campaign like let's say they've been hacked are they is the government in a position today to i don't know promptly provide information to a mm. campaign that they've been breached that's tricky you're making funny faces i i i because it's hard because okay let's let's say um 
hypothetically that the RNC would sit on Azure and the DNC would sit on Google Workspaces or vice versa, whatever. Yeah. I'm just saying those are the two easiest platforms to run your political campaign from. Um, who would make that notification? Would it be the US government? Or would it be that vendor who you have those services from? Would it be someone like a Microsoft Threat Intelligence? Or, or would it be someone like a, like a Google Tag? Would, would those be the folks mm. notifying you that you've been compromised? Because I think they would see it before the government does. Yeah. Which leads itself to a whole other uh, bucket of questions. But I, I do think that me personally, if, if you were compromised by uh, a state actor you should definitely be notified about it now with the caveat you just kind of keep that under your belt and don't kind of grandstand over oh look i'm being targeted by nation of state x that means i'm mm -hmm. important and, mm -hmm. and, and and my fear is that would happen given the environment that we're operating in Mm, that uh, a political campaign would try to make hay out of the fact that they're being yes yeah you, yes. Could, you could see uh a future Rubio campaign getting hacked by the Chinese and I then him turning any, that into like a major storyline for right? himself. Because right? of yeah. my role yeah. in the National Intelligence Committee or whatever subcommittee I sit on yeah. or, you know, that's why I'm so important and you should vote for me. I, mm. It's really easy to see how that could be spun for, mm. for you know, any kind of positive media spin on it. Okay, so, so in 2020, you were the first chief information security officer to work on a presidential campaign. You worked with... Uh, people to judge so with the benefit of hindsight how did it go i think it well it went as well as it was going to go given the environment um yeah i i, I look back on it and i'm super thankful for the opportunity i i realize now that i was able to do something that had been done i think unofficially but there was no hey you're a CISO, you're you're the title now mm -hmm. um in most cases, it had always been the IT guy who wore separate hats. Yeah. And I do think that is the case for a lot of places now. I, I am hopeful, uh, looking back, that I was able to instill a lot of, hey, this is why security is important, um, if, if not to campaigns overall, but to individuals that worked on those campaigns. I've, I've made some incredibly great friends that I still keep in touch with from those campaigns. And... Uh, it was, it was definitely a learning experience for me, both in a leadership role and both in a campaign environment, because that was the first time I'd ever worked in a political campaign. And it was unlike anything I had been in to that point and anything I had been in like since. D did you get hired into that job because of what happened in 2016? Was there a realization of, you know, because of the Russian campaign that this was a job that needed to be filled in a campaign now? I want to say no, but the I got a call randomly out of the blue. Hey, we got your name from someone. Like, I, I don't want to name drop Hulkquist, but I think it was John Hulkquist. He was like, you should talk to Mick. Mm -hmm. um, and when you look back on it, there's probably three or four people that were, were knowledgeable of everything that happened in 2016 and had a strong cybersecurity background and had built cybersecurity programs. Um, at different agencies. So I think I uniquely fit what was needed mm -hmm. at the time. Um, I've, I've built cybersecurity programs both at HHS a few times, um, you know, the, the very active in the cybersecurity community at DEF CON and lockpicking and, and my own conference. So I, I think I really fit a, a unique hole. And I think it was definitely what was needed at the time to, to really 
advanced the, the role of cybersecurity in campaigns. Mm. Um, and yeah, looking back on it, I'm thankful for that. It gave me the opportunity, you know, when I spoke it, I became a CISO in June or July rather of 2019. Uh, I spoke at CyberWorkCon, that inaugural year in November, and kind of this is what being a CISO on a political campaign is like. And to be able to, to, to kind of convey that message to, to people that had never been aware of it, I, I think was really important and really, really need to do. Yeah. So talk us through it. Like, what's it like to run cybersecurity for a national presidential campaign on, on a on a day-to-day basis? What's the job? So the first part of the job is realizing that a political campaign is unlike anything you have ever worked on in your life. It has its own tax code. It's, mm-hmm. it's its own set of rules. You're essentially an organization incorporated that is funded entirely by donation that is essentially trying to get your mascot elected as president of the United States. Mm-hmm. The candidate is not the CEO like you would normally think of in a company. It's not even the board of directors because there's no day-to-day direction. It's just the candidate has their own agenda. Your role as a CISO is much like a CISO at any other company, uh, except that you know you are on a timeline. If I started in July of an election year, year before an election year, so that gives me about six months, seven months until February. Then you start looking at all the primary states and you start looking at Super Tuesday. And then you start looking at when the eventual nomination is going to be. And let's say that's in April. Then there is a, there is a finite time for this job. Yeah. After that, you assume the DNC or the RNC would kind of take the reins for you from a security perspective and, and go on their network. Uh, so you know that you have to do as much as you can in that finite period of time. So what's going to make the most impact? Um, what are those crown jewels I mentioned? You know, I think we were talking a little bit earlier about, you know, who gets targeted in like those policy folks. I want to make sure those policy folks are super well protected. Hmm. Uh, those fundraising folks where my money is, I want to make sure those folks are super well protected as well. And there's all so many different facets of a campaign that you have to look at and Knowing those up front, I think, was super helpful for me. Being able to talk to folks, like I mentioned, from the, the Clinton campaign in 2016, like, hey, this is how our campaign run uh, ran. These are the different environments or different pillars you have to focus on. And I think that kind of gave me a leg up. What, what advice did the Clinton folks give you? Uh, know that it's temporary. I yeah. think uh, Tim Ball, who, who is over at Hillary for America, it is the most fun you're going to have in nine or 10 months. Mm. It is, you do everything. It is an entire startup cycle and either it works or it doesn't. And the, the, when you look back on something like that, you have a candidate that's running for president or any office anywhere along that line, you could be done. You could not raise enough money. You could say something stupid on camera. You could say, you know, a skeleton can come out. And any one of those things could derail your campaign. And if you look at like the yeah moment, you know, with a, uh, you was know, that Howard a Howard Dean, Dean scream? That was a Howard Dean scream. And <laughs> that's all the back in 2000, the yep. Jeb Bush, the please clap. There are any things that could just derail you at any moment. Mm. And you got to be ready for that. Or, um, you know, your candidate missteps or someone in your staff missteps. There's all these different things that you're aware of. And that's not getting into the misinformation, disinformation, all those separate things, the election security, infrastructure, all those different concerns that you have. You just try and focus on the the campaign wheelhouse of it. And on any given day, you're cycling probably what, 
a hundred new volunteers in and out, giving them access to systems. And, and it depends on how go, well your campaign's right? doing, right? Yeah. If the, the, it's a lot like, and I hate to use the reference because it's, it's the opposite side of the coin, but political campaigns are a lot like spam campaigns or phishing campaigns where you're trying to get that message out to as wide an audience as possible as quickly as possible. Hey, click on this link, donate some money, um, <laughs> do all these great things. And that's exactly what a phishing campaign would do. The, the mm -hmm. exact same thing I'm telling people don't click on is what I'm trying to get yeah. folks to click on. Uh, so it, it's onboarding people, trying to give them a sense of security. And then you learn the hierarchy of campaigns, which, you know, you have your staff, but then you have volunteers someone that's just a fan of president biden and wants to see him reelected so i'll go knock on doors in iowa for you i'll just spread the word and that's great mm -hmm. do they need the same access as someone who is full-time developing policy positions or determining your fundraiser for the next debate it's it's levels of access control that you implement mm -hmm. uh so so that's always a tricky part but Again, I think that would be tricky no matter where you ran security, whether it was a political campaign or an organization. So what advice do you have for folks who are you know, either involved in or thinking about running campaigns to try to keep them from being hacked? I don't know how many campaigns can afford a full-time CISO. And... I've thought about that a lot. Like I worked on a presidential campaign that had presidential funding and is, is the biggest table there is for a campaign. Yeah. When you look at state offices, at city offices, at local offices, and these are all interconnected systems, whether it be through NGP van, whether it be through RNC, DNC, whatever that is, uh, these are all interconnected data mechanisms. And I don't know if the monies are there to be able to hire folks. Yeah. So I think, you know, for me, the biggest thing was trying to convince people, even now I'm on that soapbox, if you see me at ShmooCon or DEFCON or something like that, it's just, if you are a fan of a candidate, go get involved. You are now a, a cybersecurity person that's involved with a campaign and you can add those skills to it. Uh, you might not be a CISO because that, just, that role is just not there, but you can implement the security change that is needed because you have that expertise. And I would encourage anyone who, who is just in, invested in how our future politics go. Just find a person, get involved in a campaign and say, hey, look, I, I, I know cybersecurity, I can help out. Uh, most folks I know wear multiple hats on a campaign. Like I mentioned earlier, it's always been the IT person that has worn the security hat as well. And, and I think we're gonna see just that shift where everybody does all the things mm -hmm. you do what you're able to do and kind of help out the candidate you're most invested in. We spend a lot of time, I think, when talking about threats to campaigns focused on the presidential campaigns, because that's it's the big one. Mm -hmm. It's the one we have the most experience kind of thinking about in terms of a, I don't know, information operation context, for lack of a better term. But there's all these other campaigns out there as well that might be of interest, whether it's, you know, local congressional campaigns, mayoral campaigns, whatever. Right. Like, do you have a sense of, of what the threat picture looks like for some of these other campaigns? Uh, if I'm if I'm you know, running for mayor of Miami, is the Cuban intelligence service trying to hack my campaign? Or like, what does because that, that would picture be regionalized look like? intelligence. You would have to kind of work into that. Um, I gave the keynote at besides charm 20 
22, I want to say 22. And talk about midterms. Yep. Nobody cares about midterm elections. Yep. Right. They, they get the least amount of, of publicity because whether unless it's an important seat that changes, we don't focus on it too much. Yep. And we saw targeting by state actors to, to, to campaigns or to uh, houses, Senate houses, House offices. And I think we'll continue to see that only because we know that there's not a lot of focus paid to those. Um so goes the funding, so goes the security. And, and you mentioned presidential campaigns. That's the biggest stage. We've got one coming up in November. And you can look on the FEC's website now how many, how many donations and how that money is just piling up in the election. Those same resources are not available at lower level seats. Mm -hmm. So I don't think anything can really change from preventing an IO operation, preventing a sheer compromise until that funding and resource level changes. Mm. So I'm glad you mentioned 24 We're headed into this election year. What do you think the hacking threat picture looks like for campaigns working in 24? It's a tough one. I think that Campaigns will have the same threats we've faced historically, whether it's it's someone looking to to completely disrupt the campaign, just kind of, kind of a showstopper, or like I mentioned uh, uh, earlier, whether it's a country that is invested in learning about your policy positions or potential policy positions if you are elected. Mm. I know that if I am, let's say, the, the, the PRC, I have historically been invested in learning the policy positions of candidates. And in the event they're elected, I can know how that will play off what I have planned. Um, I, I think given the current state of the world, and by that I mean kind of on fire, yep. uh, I, I think the players that would generally be involved in our elections are really busy at the moment, right? Mm -hmm. Russia is always the big kid in the room. They've all yep. had a hand. Um, I remember I wrote a blog that I got in trouble for a while back. It said, uh, and it was perfect, like ICD-203, if you've taken that intelligence community class. It's a Russia almost certainly has a continued interest in U.S. elections, right? It is just the most milquetoast statement ever. Yep. Um, but I think it's true. Whether they're currently investing most of their resources in Ukraine or not, every country has an interest in seeing how the 2024 election plays out. Um, and, and it might sound kind of jingoistic, and I'm, and I'm sure it'll play out that way. It's just so goes America, so goes the world. Mm -hmm. um, the, the policy positions that we develop here, who we elect president here, I think that generally affects the rest of the world for good or for bad. Uh, so other countries, other intelligence organizations would certainly have a vested interest to learn what, that, what might happen. Um, to shape it, I think that's a different conversation. And I, I think there is a big distinction between campaign security, election security, and I.O. When you talk about pure information operations, I think they're all intertwined. But I, I don't think that there is one silver bullet catch-all solution mm. for something like I.O. when it really comes down to critical thinking skills and how that information is kind of released across uh, um, the internet, I think that's changed so much in the past 2020, 2016, 2008, how misinformation mm -hmm. has developed and spread has changed exponentially. So yeah, let's, let's game that out a little bit. So how would you see 
or rather let's let's ask the question this way like put your shoes in, put yourself in the shoes of an actor trying to run an information operation targeting the u.s election like how would you go about doing it if i was and what's the end stage it's a I, I think that let's say state, I'm trying to get let's say I'm trying to get Trump elected. I would kind of stoke the flames of what's already been started, in my opinion, in 2020. Yeah. Um, 2016, you know, when I was at the White House, we saw a technical compromise where, where there was an actual like something got hacked. And in 2020, I don't believe we saw that. I think 2020, what we saw was an erosion of the system itself, trust in that system, um, the electorate, the courts, the election infrastructure. We saw an erosion in the authenticity of that. Mm. And if I was a bad actor in 2024, I would play off what I learned in, in 16, where I don't need that technical hack. In 2020, I just kind of raised those flames. I, I, I kind of, you know, kind of stoke the the dissent. And hey, the, the the election count isn't right. Yeah. Hey, these systems can't be trusted. Yeah. And I think that that groundwork's already there. Whether it's true or not, it's already there, which kind yeah. of stinks. But what are you going to do? Right? Yeah. Like a lie is a lie as long as it lives. And it's been living for quite some time. So if I was a bad actor, I could definitely stoke on that, stoke on division in between the parties. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's funny. I, I, I was looking back at a lot of the articles from 2020 and Shannon Vavra, I know it's like a blast in the past. Right Former cyberscooper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She mm -hmm. is amazing. She actually covered, uh, she scooped when I left the Buttigieg campaign. And, and I looked at that 2020. And uh, when I spoke at Gov Summit, and, and one of the things I, I spoke on there was, wouldn't it be cool if all the campaigns were, hey, we should work together and, and share information about compromises or share information about what we're seeing? And I still, in my heart of hearts, eh, I still believe that. But in the current environment, do you think that could be a possibility? No. Right? Where like, no. not even like a, a, maybe a, a Democratic candidate sharing with a Democratic candidate. That might be possible. Maybe. maybe. But across the aisle? Definitely not. Hey, look, I'm seeing this website that's trying to fish everyone. You guys should. That would never happen. No. And... I think it speaks to that dissent that's kind of been growing and growing for a while. And maybe because of my security background, it's always been very, very binary. You know, either there's something compromised or it's not. Um, I've always looked at it. If you are running a race or if you're trying to compete for something, you want to win on your best day. Yeah. You want to compete against your, your best opponent and not something that you've kind of chipped away at. But that's that, you know, altruistic, overly ideal sense of what is right in politics and what, what could potentially be. Mm. But I still think there is merit in the idea if you are a campaign, much in the way that infrastructure for elections is kind of managed by the state, that campaign infrastructure could be centralized so we could have a level playing field for all candidates mm. where everyone sits on platform X. These are the tools available to you. But if I see anyone trying to compromise candidate A, I'll let candidates B through Z know. Yep. B through Z, it might be more than that because it seems like when there's an open field, there's 20 plus initially. Right. But it's interesting though. I mean, so if we think about kind of threats to 2024, 
what I'm hearing from you is it probably wouldn't make very much sense to like run a hack and leak operation in 24. I don't think you would need to. Yeah, be a lot right. of work for something you could do more easily, right? I mean, you look at the current tools, state, right? okay, and, I, and, and, and again, I don't want to speak ill of our current system or candidates, but it's established who our primary candidates are going to be in the 24 election. You have yeah. President Biden, who's the current incumbent, and you have what ever is happening over on uh, the GOP side, whether that's uh, Governor DeSantis, Secretary Haley, or even President Trump, any one of those three or a combination of those three might be a potential candidate. And I think kind of those playbooks, those profiles that are already out there from the last election. I don't think you'd have to modify them much to have an effect. Yeah. You know, I, I think that um, the way that misinformation is created and distributed online now has grown so much since 2020 the ease of use i guess for misinformation to be spread mm. has has grown so much since 2020 election that i think that is the big fear now where something we can generally be reserved for state level actors whether it was russia china or even a cambridge analytica yeah i think that bar has gotten so lower now where you can just do it from your laptop in the basement I'm almost surprised that we don't see more hack and leak operations in a way. Like it would make sense to me if we campaigns were getting breached on a regular basis, given the resource constraints that you're talking about. Right. And then that the documents or material or data that was stolen through a breach was then, you know, leaked into a, as part of a political campaign. I'm surprised we don't see more of that or perhaps it is happening a lot. And we just don't know that the origin of that material is a breach. I, if I'm in a state collecting intelligence information, I am 100% going to hack. Leak that mm. might happen a decade later, right. or why would I give that away? Um, yeah, I, I think that, and when you look at the infrastructure, where, where nothing's local anymore, everything is cloud-based, so you look at those infrastructures where campaigns would sit, yeah. And in order to compromise that campaign, I'm going to have to compromise Google. I'm going to have to compromise Microsoft to get into that information. And, and I think that is, is more difficult uh, given the scrutiny that those organizations specifically have put on campaigns that, that sit on them. Mm. I know there's a lot of folks out there, you know, Michael Kaiser and his outfit DDC, they have been doing uh, just incredible work for the past, I don't know, five, 10 years about, well, since the FEC decision, you know, trying to get campaigns up leveled for security. And I, and I think, you know, 2008, when I first started paying attention, um, nothing there, 2016, wow, we should really do something about this. 2020, I, w I think I was able to do something. And 2024, you look at uh, the Biden campaign, the CISO role that they're looking for, you can, you know, I'd like to believe that they are invested in, in promoting the security of their campaign. As far as, you know, the, the timing of it or the longevity of it, that's a separate discussion. And I think, you know, Steve and the gang over at the DNC uh, are well set up to take whatever campaign mm -hmm in their umbrella. So we talked a lot about the info ops. The uh, two other bu buckets you talked about were um, campaign security and then election security. You can start with either one of those, like if you wanted to go after so one of election those buckets security, in 24, right? Like, like how are you thinking about it? 
election security, I would go after that one. A hundred percent I would. Just because everything I've learned about election security is that, uh, what's the phrase? If you've seen one election security system, then you have seen one election security system. <laughs> one of the amazing things about the United States is that we're 50 independent states. So we have 50 independent electoral systems that kind of work in conjunction in tandem, but they're all slightly different and they're all run by the state. So there's no overarching schema we can put on this and we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot. But at the same time, if I'm suggesting to federalize an election, I think that invites a whole other host of constitutional problems. Yeah. Um, my personal opinion and someone who is smarter than me can tell me how wrong I am. I don't understand why campaigns are not ingratiated into election security. Campaigns are a separate incorporation. I understand that they're incorporated in the state. And my opinion is that state should, if you are a candidate, that infrastructure should be provided to you for mm. the tenure of your campaign, because in my head, there is a baseline that I could force to be implemented, yep. whether that's compliance, whether that's security at a state level. If your campaign operates in my state, you will follow X, Y, Z guidelines. And, and I'm sure, like I said, someone smarter than me who went to college can tell me how wrong I am about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right now there's no... That's wild west. It's a hundred percent wild west. If right. you don't want to have yeah. MFA, then don't. If yeah. you don't want to roll out hardware tokens, then don't. Yeah. It is really entirely up to you. There is no playbook for it. Yeah. I know that after uh, 2016, a lot of the folks that are um, over at Stanford wrote uh, Robbie Wilson, Robbie Mook wrote the playbook. You know, incident response, which was kind of. A non-security person wrote it, and you can tell that. It's not a knock yeah. against it, but as a person who's never done DFIR, you're not going to know how to respond to an incident when it happens. And, and I think that's changed a lot since then. But going to back what I talked to you about uh, the school at Georgetown, the class at Georgetown, and how campaigns are run until cybersecurity becomes a focus and ingratiated in that syllabus, and I think we're going to have the same conversation in 24, 28, 32. We're going to keep have, keeping this can down the road, keep kicking it farther and farther until something like 2016 happens again. Yeah. All right, McBacho, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been great. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Safe Mode, a weekly podcast on cybersecurity and digital privacy brought to you by CyberScoop. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and a review. And share it with your friends, your mom, your dad. Nobody wants to get hacked. To find out more information or to contact me, your host, please visit cyberscoop.com.